I was trying to figure it out in my head. What am I doing wrong? Am I just not built for this? Have I hit the ceiling in my career? Like just a lot of self-doubt. I really got to sit back and self-reflect. Where are my areas of improvement? I've been doing this for close to 20 years. How could I hit a situation like this again? Hey, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan. And this show is where I chat with people who lead cross-functional growth teams but I'm not interested in learning about their favorite tactics, strategies, or playbooks. There's enough shows about that online from other folks. I'm interested in hearing about the personal challenges, career adversity, and self-doubt when you work in growth roles at early stage companies. These are hard jobs and this show normalizes making mistakes and encountering adversity. I have an amazing guest today, which is Patrick Moran. Patrick has been in consumer marketing for over a decade and has spent time with some amazing brands, Robin Hood, House, Spotify, TiVo, Netflix, eBay, and Reforge. He's got an incredible background. He also hosts his own podcast called Finding Market Fit. And I was super excited to chat with Patrick for a bunch of reasons. One, he's insanely impressive and his resume speaks for itself. But the second is because I was excited to learn about some of the mistakes that he's made in working at some of these incredible companies. And Patrick shared two things that I think will be really, really interesting for the listeners. The first is he talked about some of his early mistakes. Specifically, we investigated the importance of managing up, how he's learned to find a good balance between doing things that you're incredibly good at versus things that are outside of your comfort zone, and the importance of recognizing when you need to apply first principles thinking. Patrick also shared how he knows when it's time to leave a job that's evolved into something you don't enjoy anymore. A lot of working in growth is joining high growth companies and high change companies, Sometimes that's good change. Other times it might not be good and it might be time for you to move on and to do something else. Patrick shared his experience and a whole bunch of other stuff in our conversation. Let's jump right in. This episode is presented by AppQs. If you work in product-led growth, you know how important activating and engaging new accounts is. Turning new accounts into active users is critical to your success in a PLG environment and typically why activated accounts is a North Star metric for growth teams. It's why my team spent years focused on improving our new user onboarding experience during my time at Wistia and at PostScript. And that's why I'm so excited that AppQs is sponsoring the show. They're just as passionate about helping product-led companies fix their onboarding and their retention as I am. They're the leading product onboarding and adoption platform for web and mobile apps. And they've helped over 1,500 SaaS orgs create exceptional onboarding experiences that convert new users into power users and brand advocates. So if you're looking for help activating more new accounts, head to appqs.com slash value. They have a free new user onboarding audit, which is done by Romley John. He literally wrote the book on new user onboarding, and he's a close personal friend of mine. For help, head to appqs.com slash value. This episode is brought to you by Nevatic. We're seeing the next phase of product-led growth emerge right now. The first phase of PLG was all about using your product as a go-to-market tool, basically creating free plans, free trials, or reverse free trials getting new accounts to sign up, and then layering in retention and upgrade programs. It was a solid playbook. The only challenge is that the product value is hidden behind your signup form, which means that most of your visitors never get to see it. The next phase of PLG is all about leading with product value, creating interactive product demos, embedding them on your website, and letting people play with them, click around, and see the value before signing up. This engages way more people, which means more experience that value, more convert to your paid plans, and more become brand advocates. If you're sold on the idea, but not sure where to start, check out Novatic. Their no-code editor makes it easy to create interactive demos, 
and they're offering a free trial exclusively for Delivering Value listeners. Go to nevatic.com slash value and sign up for a free trial and see for yourself. You've got an incredibly impressive background, and I'm curious how you first got into growth. Still a relatively new thing. It's probably even newer at some of the companies where you have worked in the past. How did you get here? I basically got into growth via the acquisition motion on paid media. And I essentially was very lucky to have landed over at eBay many years ago. And so eBay was spending roughly half a billion dollars in paid media back then. And so the amount of investment that they made insofar as things that we even still think about and continue to work on today, like cross-channel attribution, incrementality, payback periods, and things like that were already things that they were very much ahead of the game on. I was actually brought in as a product manager, and I thought that was going to become like a PM, but eBay was going to outsource some of their paid search capabilities to other e-commerce companies. Today, that's unheard of because so many agencies are already doing that. Back then, just capabilities on paid search and being able to derive really amazing models using eBay's signals because people will search on eBay. So when Michael Jackson passed away, for example, eBay knew to start bidding on certain keywords on Google before anybody else because they were getting signals from people searching on eBay. Their paid search capabilities was just way ahead of a lot of other players in the space. They were looking to do that, but three days into the job, the person who was leading that initiative quit. So they basically deprecated that project. I ended up in internet marketing, and that's essentially how it all got started. Has this career path come naturally to you? Have you felt drawn to this as you've continued on? I would just say that there were some things that came a little bit easier to me than other things. And I think I spent maybe the first 10 years or so getting acclimated with all of these motions and capabilities. And I think it's only within, I would say, maybe the last five or so years where things just completely started to make a lot more sense. But I had just come from graduate school when I joined eBay. So unit economics was just something that came easy, not because I'm some sort of financial guru or anything, but I had literally just studied net present value and cash flow and what have you. And so moving into marketing and then having marketing use that as a basis for spend was mind-blowing. It was like I had no idea that I would actually be using some of these things for my job. But there were certain areas that were a little bit easier, like the measurement aspect of it, just the logical aspects of it, testing capabilities, like all of these things independent of marketing just generally made sense to me. There are certainly other areas that I had to learn the hard way and make mistakes on. Happy to dive into any of those areas. Yeah, I want to get into some of the lessons learned in a second. But what's really interesting to me is I feel like there's a lot of marketers who are talented marketers that don't understand the connection between marketing to business impact, some of the unit economics that you mentioned. And what's really interesting is you came from the flip side where you said, hey, I really understood unit economics from day one based on my experience. I had to learn how to apply that in my role as a marketer. I can't help but think that probably was a huge advantage early on in your career that someone didn't need to pull you aside to explain how to make those connections like they would have with other folks. It depends. It wasn't a huge advantage for me coming into eBay because the environment that I came into was just very analytical to begin with. Relative to the environment that I was in, it was just sort of understood. In fact, there were so many other things with internet marketing, whether it's, okay, well, how do we think about building versus buying? Once you start to get deep into, okay, well, how do we start affecting some of these models? Those areas I was lost in. But generally speaking, within that environment at eBay, it wasn't that much of a pull. Moving over to Netflix, that was definitely beneficial because the way that they were buying ad inventory back then was based off of return on ad spend. So they had some general guardrails on unit economics, 
there were some areas of it that was a little bit easier for me, but that's just one component. There were so many other components too. A lot of these things that I really had to learn the hard way on how to handle. Was there a particular moment or person who has impacted your career journey? I was at eBay for about two and a half years and it was a comfortable and a decent job. The people that I was working with back then, if you look at them now, are some of the best in the industry. So Robert Chatwani was the person leading all of internet marketing. He's now the president of DocuSign. He was the CMO of Atlassian. I was working with Pauline Reader. She's now the CMO of Podium. I was working with Jackie Chu, who was leading paid search, and she was the CMO of Instacart. And I can go on. Like Just the people that I had worked with, the amount that I was learning from them was pretty significant. One of the things that we were doing at eBay was we were talking to other companies. We spoke to about 50 other companies to try and figure out how we stacked or how we were doing relative to everybody else. And we wanted to better understand what were other companies doing that maybe we were overlooking or maybe that we want to start looking into. And one of those companies was Netflix. Physically, Netflix is two and a half miles south of eBay. Back then, we spoke to them about a month after Quickster. They had literally lost, I think, two-thirds of their value within weeks. I remember that because I was at HubSpot. And for what it's worth, at HubSpot, we talked about eBay and how people got on to do all these things. And Brian Halligan, the CEO, said, hey, we want to create that environment here. It's really cool to hear you start to share some of the inside baseball there. And I also remember us talking about Netflix and what had happened. Yeah, there's just so many of these stories, right, that is just so fascinating. And even the way that eBay was doing marketing back then, there's programmatic media buying, which today everybody can just generally access through the trade desk and through their agencies. Back then, eBay was actually doing programmatic buying directly, which nobody was doing. And so then to be able to tack that onto certain things like being able to derive the LTV of users who are much more transactional-based versus subscription-based, it's just the level of complexity was insane. But I guess getting back to the story, at that point, Netflix needed someone to come in and manage all of North America. And so they reached out and they're like, hey, given the stuff that you learned at eBay, would you want to come over? And I had my hesitations. I met with the team. I liked the team a lot. Obviously, they had just come from Quickster. They're a DVD business. They're trying to move into internet on the TV. And they had Reed Hastings actually chat with me back then and speak with me. I was actually not that nervous because for the most part, it was less about him asking me about my experiences because I've already had multiple conversations with a lot of other folks. But it was more around him selling the vision. And in that vision, he basically said, look, you could stay at eBay. That's fine. Nobody's going to fault you for that. But if you come to Netflix, there is a chance that we could fail. And if we fail, the economy is fine. You'll find something else. But if we succeed, you now have that story to tell that you're at the bottom floor of something that revolutionized an industry. What we're going to do, we're going to try and become an HBO and develop original content, but serve it over the top and serve it through the internet. And it just could not register. First of all, I'm going to replace cable TV with you guys. I just could not fathom that over the internet. And then the second thing was that you mean you guys are going to have Entourage, Game of Thrones, Sex and the City, Sopranos type content? It was such a remote idea from where things were for Netflix back then, who had just lost two-thirds of their value because of the things that they were doing. And he said, look, this could very well fail, but this is what we're going to bet the company on. And I really think that you would be a critical player in that. And the reason why I bring up that story is because... I'm sure that my career trajectory would have been fundamentally different. The types of opportunities that I would have been afforded if I had stayed at eBay would have been pretty decent. But getting the opportunity to come to Spotify 
and be the global head of growth marketing working at Robinhood, which are industries that I really like just because I've fallen in love with consumer subscription to a certain degree. That would not have come had it not for that conversation, I guess, that I had with Reed back then. That evening, I was having dinner with my wife and my daughter. While we were having dinner, Reed knows this. He sent me a LinkedIn request that evening. In the note, he basically said something like, take a chance with us. This is going to change the world. I think that had a major impact to my career. And so your career has been impressive, objectively. On the outside looking, it may not feel that way to you because it's you and it's your life. But on the outside looking in, Robinhood, House, Spotify, TiVo, Netflix, talked about eBay already. You've got to work with Reforge. I'm curious if you could share one of your early career mistakes so that folks don't think you're too perfect. Far from it. It's actually like a series of mistakes that I ended up making. While I was at Netflix, I was on the performance team and there was an opportunity for me to go move to the brand team. And I had already done some work on brand media and essentially just made sense for me to move to that team. I wasn't great at it. And for the most part, it just didn't work out like over a year. And I realized that maybe this is the end of the rope for me over at Netflix. And there's a lot in there. But generally speaking, I think there's maybe three things that I did not do well. I think the first thing that I did not do particularly well in is in managing up. So my boss back then, she had come from an agency and she was new and I was coming from Netflix and I had never worked in an agency. She had her own managing style and she was given goals. She wanted to succeed. There's a lot of expectation. She moved across the country to take that role. I think from my standpoint, I didn't take any of that into consideration. So I didn't adjust my communication style. I didn't try to learn about what her motivations were. And I think one of the things that I learned back then, and I still continue to learn now, is that the relationship that I have with my boss is very much two-way. There's also a lot of managing up that I would have to do to ensure that the relationship is healthy. I just don't think that I did that particularly well. She's actually a really great marketer, and she's gone on to have a really great career. I'm curious if you could share how this manifested, because there's going to be folks listening to this who also struggle with managing up, and they might be wondering, like, what this looked like for you or what pain this might have created for you in that moment with this new manager. It actually was not bad. There was no screaming matches. There was no major disagreements. We were friendly personally, but we both knew that for whatever reason, I just wasn't the right fit for this role and I wasn't asking for help and I wasn't trying to understand what great looked like. I had my own perspective on what great looked like for brand media. There is a fundamental difference between managing performance media and managing brand media. Performance media is always on. You're relying on a handful of different experiments running all the time, and your measurement capabilities are much more structured. When you're running brand media, it's a different mentality altogether. You're working with an agency, you're trying to move different types of metrics, and it's sporadic, and you have to understand and have a true sense for the sensibilities of your audience and what might resonate with them. Whereas in performance media, I'm like, you know what? The publishers will figure that out. The publishers will figure out who to target and how frequently to target them. And so I came in with that mentality. And obviously she's also new, right? So she's coming from agency. She's trying to figure out, do I push back on this person? Because she's used to structure from an agency perspective. I look back and just a certain level of immaturity that I had back then. So that's how that manifested. I think the second thing for me that I realized back then was that Usually where I do really well, if there's a foundation of work that I can rely on myself on or my team on to deliver on, and that's accountable with. So in this instance, it's basically performance marketing. And usually where I will succeed 
is if now you supplement that with something that is new. So when I ended up leading lifecycle marketing on the growth side, let's say Yik Yak, that came naturally to me because there's the performance side and the acquisition side. But then if you look at the whole growth model, the lifecycle side just attaches to it naturally. And then the motions for lifecycle marketing is also you're setting up experiments, you're figuring out MarTech and what have you. The flavor might be different, but the motions, relatively speaking, are the same. And so to me, that wasn't a stretch. In this situation, I completely just let go of performance marketing and jumped right into brand. And so I think the second big lesson for me in that situation is I'm in charge of my career. And I think I basically farmed that out to the company because the company was like, you should do this. You would be good at it. You would learn new stuff against it. But the org doesn't know the nuances of how that would work. And the org does not really care about my career long-term outside of Netflix. That's not on Netflix. That's on me. And I just trusted it, right? So if the org is telling me this and, you know, I'm getting all of these signals that they want me to do this. And it was great for my career for several months before I left. This is so relatable. I talk to folks who might explain it slightly differently, but they might say something like, hey, I have this opportunity to do this thing for the company that I've never done before that I don't really know if I want to do, but I'm trying to be a team player and I'm trying to balance, should I be a team player or do the selfish thing, which is what I really like to do. And I'm struggling to figure it out. And I think a lot of times what I hear is that people want to be a team player. And so they say yes to the thing. And then later they might regret it or it might not work out. And it sounds like that's what happened with you here. You just got too far outside your zone. At the end of the day, we're all accountable for something. I think there will always be the other aspects of being effective in an organization. Am I being a team player? Am I leading well? Am I managing up well? Am I managing sideways well? Am I a culture carrier? All of these things. But ultimately, I have to be accountable for something. And that's what the organization cares about. I care about my career. The organization cares about what I'm accountable for and whether I'm delivering against that. And so I think there's a balance in those two. And I think there are many situations where there was an imbalance. I'm like, okay, you know what? Maybe this is better for my career. So like in this situation, no brand media. Oh, I could go be a CMO like right after this. But then, okay, well, can you actually deliver against it? Those are questions I didn't ask myself. Can you actually deliver against this? Can you actually look into what this means, how this impacts the organization, how this impacts the goals of my boss? And I didn't look at that. I was just like, perfect, whatever. This would be great on my LinkedIn. I think there's always that balance. And I think that was like an imbalance for me. It's funny. I had Adam Fishman on the show not too long ago, and he actually talked about the moments that were the most challenging in his career when that scale got out of whack for him. He described it slightly differently, but it's the same point which is when you spend too much time outside of your core expertise, it feels bad. A lot of times things don't go well. That's if you're going to have a bad performance review, it typically is around that time and those themes. And it sounds like you essentially learned the same lesson in your own way. Yeah, I think we're wired in a way where you want to take on more because it's like, okay, if I can take on more, then there's much more of an opportunity for me to move higher up in the organization. There's much more of an opportunity for me to get all of these experiences for whatever role I take on next, whether it's internal or external. But I think over the years, I've learned that my life isn't just my work. My life also extends to my family and my personal stuff. And there has to be some sort of balance. For me, there's three areas. One is work. The other is personal life, my relationship with my family and friends. And the third is my personal health. There's always some type of imbalance going on. It's never like a perfect triangle. But if one of those skews a little bit way too far, it impacts everything else. It goes beyond work. We were talking about some of the early career mistakes and you started to reference three. The first one was managing up. Second one was 
the mix and the balance of foundational work versus work, which was outside of that. And I'm curious what the third one was. I think the third one, which is very much related to the second one, to me is now whenever I enter and understand something that's new, it's now first principles thinking. And I think first principles thinking was in this experience over at Netflix, I came in with my own set of biases. This is how it should work. This is what should be done. I think it's fair to have personal biases and what have you relative to your sets of experiences. And that's ultimately what you're paid for. But at the same time, there's a lot of other people who have done amazing work in this new domain that are better experts than I am. And so I probably should have just started to ask myself, what does great look like? And where are we today? Where are my skill sets? And how do we bridge that gap? And what's the roadmap to getting there? I can use a lot of these perspectives on experimentation and making a few bets here and there, but within that construct. The interesting thing about this and just kind of reflecting on it is that the team that my boss built was amazing. They all came from like really great agencies, but one person ended up leading this entire role over at Airbnb. And she's just a rock star. At Reforge, I would just ping anybody. There were so many opportunities that I had to ask a lot of these amazing people, what does great look like? How do we get there? How did you get there? How is this structured? What are some of the common pitfalls? And those weren't the questions I was asking. The questions I was asking was, why do you think this budget is correct? Just basically questions that were very biased to my view of the world, as opposed to coming in with sort of an open mindset and really sort of understanding first principles, how actually is this going to work and how do we start to piece it out? That was really important to me and still something that I really look at. I think that's a common thing for what it's worth. It almost always happens or manifests in one of those middle steps in your career. Because when you're early, you know that you don't know anything, right? You're just a sponge and you're trying to learn and you're the first person to raise your hand and say, this is probably a stupid question. And then all of a sudden you think you're the expert. And what I've learned is then you pass that zone and then you realize, I don't know that much. I still have all this stuff to learn. And it's all about trying to find the right answer and not necessarily assume that you know the right answer. And so that really resonates with me personally and also what I see as someone who coaches and mentors other folks on their journey. At least for me, the sooner that I get to that point where I realize I don't know a lot, the better for me. If there's one thing that I've learned over the last several years is actually how to manage the time where I feel like I don't know enough. And so that's where it starts to get into first principles. What are the most important questions that I need to be asking? So Shashir Marotra, I listened to all of his podcasts, but he talks about eigenquestions. And essentially the definition of that, I think, is if you had just one or two questions to ask, what would they be? It's a great perspective on efficiency. And that's how I've started to think about the world is once I get past the Dunning-Kruger situation where I've realized that I don't know anything, what are the one or two or handful of questions that I want to prioritize in order for us to start to make an impact? But it took me many years to get to this point and a lot of failure and to some level hubris, but I'm glad that I got to this point. Yeah, sometimes those lessons, the only way to pick them up is to go through the trenches a little bit. And that's what you're sharing here. One of the things that I've heard you talk a little bit about already today is the importance of adaptability in your career and in your roles. And I agree for what it's worth. I think adaptability is probably one of the most important skills for anyone who works in tech and especially in growth because things are always changing. And sometimes that change is good and the company's growing and you've got to learn to grow with it or your role is scaling or getting bigger, like what you were just sharing. And sometimes that change can be challenging. And I'm curious if you can share an experience where your role changed into something that you didn't enjoy. I joined House in 2019 and the company just had a lot of really amazing plans for the future. I think the brand was built out pretty well, 
But like everything with the pandemic, things change and the company just has to fundamentally change with what's going on. On top of that, the landscape has now changed. Well, okay, our revenue mix is now starting to change. What bets do we need to make? And to make a long story short, I ended up in a situation where I wasn't particularly strong at the role that I ended up taking on or however, which way the role ended up evolving to. And just for context, what is your role during this time? I was basically leading paid media, lifecycle marketing. We're building out MarTech. We were trying to consolidate some of the product marketing capabilities, at least on the consumer side. I think for the most part, a lot of marketing before I joined was really just performance marketing. I'm sure things have changed, but at that time, they wanted somebody to really start to come in and really think about holistically, okay, well, what does this mean? Not just on the acquisition side, but also on the retention side. How do we work closer with product? And then how do we start to figure out the brand? And how big is the company at this time? For those of us that don't know, just to contextualize. Maybe between 500 to 1,000 people, I think. They have a pretty sizable sales team. The role ended up evolving really quickly because of what happened with COVID and the company had to go through a riff with COVID that was painful, but it was something that we had to do. And then it was just this focus on driving revenue in the most profitable way. And when you go from optimizing for revenue to optimizing for profitability, there's a lot of changes that have to be made. First of all, you have to double down on LTV. Like you have to double down on product market fit at that point, because that's the only way you could spend up more. Now you're focusing on product. Now you're focusing on MarTech. And second thing is you're now cutting a lot of channels because day one, you're optimizing towards return on ad spend, and then suddenly you're now optimizing for ROI. It's just a lot of different changes, and I just don't know that I was the right person. I was probably the right person at the beginning when there needed to be some changes and kind of like leadership situations, but I just don't know that I was the right person eventually when it came down to making those very specific changes to campaign optimization and what have you. And I don't think this is any different from what a lot of other people experience, whether it's positive for them or negative. That's just the nature of any role, right? It's just the ability to roll with the changes. And in some situations, you end up rolling with the changes really well. And in some situations, you end up rolling with situations that are not fit. So you said, hey, it started to evolve into something that wasn't the right fit. Was that a feeling? Was there something specific? Was there a moment? Or was it more just this slow evolution over time that stopped feeling good to you? Like, how did you know it's not the right fit? And I'm asking because... I know that there's a ton of folks who will be listening to this who got hired for a job X amount of time ago. The job is different today. And they're probably wondering, is that me? Should I leave or is it about to change again? So I'm curious how you approach that and how you felt it. There were two moments very specifically, and they happened not too distant from each other. I think there was one moment where my boss was asking me, okay, why would we want to make this particular bet? And I just didn't have a clear answer to it. And the underlying implications of that is I had just lost the ability to fully understand the way that the businesses work and the economics of the business at that time. I can dive even deeper into that. Like, why was that the case? Is it just a lack of interest? Is it just a lack of intellect? And I think it was probably a conflation of all of those things, where if there's a lack of interest, the intelligence is going to follow soon after that. So I think that was one. And then very closely after that, people were asking me outside the company, like, hey, this is a company I'm really interested in joining. What do you think about it? And at the time, like I just felt torn. How honest am I going to be here with the situation? And am I bought into what my role is going to be here over the course of time, right? You're just forced to ask those questions internally, like personally, because they were asking for my advice. It was at that point where I kind of realized maybe this is not the right place for me. I mean, like anything is just painful, right? Because I really wanted to stay 
up until certain situations and company goals. And it's like one of those things where you know that there's like a party and like people are going to come to the party at 11, at 12, at one or whatever. Suddenly you realize, okay, well, actually I have to leave at 11. I can't stay till one. And it's just one of those things where I couldn't continue having those conversations and continue telling people to join the organization when I just wasn't happy. And it had little to do with the organization. I think the people there are absolutely amazing and have just a significant amount of respect for. I would say those two things. And maybe the third thing is not having a great relationship with my counterparts and on the product side. I hold those relationships in very high regard, product and finance very specifically. And when those relationships go awry, I know there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the way that I'm performing or that I'm leading my teams. Was this one of those situations that you took home at the end of the night? The closest parallel in my own life when I've gone through a situation like this, I didn't sleep well. I'd wake up in the night thinking about it. When I drive into work or when I commute into work, I'd sort of have a bad vibe just to start the day instead of fully charged. Did you feel any of that? It's a great question. It definitely seeped into my personal life with the relationship that I have with my wife and my kids. At that point, I'm usually pretty gregarious at dinner and I'm usually the one who's, you know what, let's go out, do this, that, and the other thing and sleep for six hours or whatever. And I was just so withheld and so they could see it. And I just didn't want to talk about it. I was trying to figure it out in my head. What am I doing wrong? Am I just not built for this? Have I hit the ceiling in my career? Like just a lot of self-doubt, which is why like my time at Reforge was so fulfilling to me after that. I really got to sit back and really self-reflect. Where are my areas of improvement? I've been doing this for close to 20 years. How could I hit a situation like this again? The positive that came out of this was that I spent a lot of time running and I lost a ton of weight and then I PR'd my marathon. That's how bad the situation was. Yeah, literally running away. Exactly. PR'd a marathon. I ran two marathons, by the way, in one year. That's how bad it was for me personally. It's more me than anything else. What's your advice to someone who's going through their flavor of this? They're somewhere, there's been some change, it doesn't feel right anymore, and they're doing what you described. They're questioning if it's them, is it the situation? Have they reached the limit of their career? Should they leave this tech thing behind to become a barista or a woodworker? If someone is listening that's going through that, what would your advice to them be? I'd say two things. The first thing is to take a step back and try to think about what advice you would give a friend who was going through exactly the same thing. And so I would just try to take myself out of it and be objective about it because I think what that forces you to do is to realize that this is a stage. This isn't embedded in you as a person. It's a stage, right? How many experiments actually don't turn out well in any growth organization? 70% doesn't mean that the 30% isn't impactful. Facebook is Facebook for a reason. And I'm sure they failed in more experiments than anybody else. The second thing is to actually plan out scenarios. And I think that to me is something that I've really tried to understand and try to do really well. So let's say it doesn't work out. Okay, well, how long is that going to take? Financially speaking, what does that mean? I think that's usually what kept me up at night was uncertainty. So just forcing yourself to really face the reality of what might happen, I think will provide a little bit of a sense of reflection while at the same time trying to take the emotions out of it. And then the third one is just have conversations. We're social beings by nature. And for me, it's just having conversations with my wife and just having these self-reflections. And I think the Reforce situation was amazing as well because everybody had their own stories. It was such a great small community of EIRs where everyone had their own stories of some level of difficulty with a career. I guess I'm not alone. I'm not the failure that I thought I was. That's why I wanted to make the show because most of us suffer silently. 
and we blame ourselves. And usually the first story and the first connection that we can make mentally is the one where we're inadequate or at fault. And that's maybe in some cases the truth, but I think in most cases, really not the truth. Sometimes it's just not the right fit. From the outside looking in, I live in Boston. I'll speak on behalf of some East Coast tech. I think that there's a perception on the East Coast that there are just some folks who are smarter than us. Folks like you, like Adam, like Elena, like all the other smart folks you mentioned, that they just know some stuff that we don't know and y'all bat a thousand percent. And the rest of us are over here grinding it out, making all these silly mistakes. And what I've learned is everybody encounters challenge and adversity and some people keep going and some decide that this isn't for them. But getting tough feedback and having tough situations that occur in your career isn't a sign that you're not made for this. It's just a sign that these are tough jobs in tough spaces, and probably you're doing a lot better than you think you are. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the time that I've had off was eventually actually starting a podcast like you. And what that's done for me is expand my perspectives on things. And one of the areas that I really enjoyed in the podcast was actually speaking to leaders outside of the U.S., leaders in Mexico, other parts of Latin America, leaders in Indonesia. And you start to have this appreciation Everybody has dealt with a different set of challenges, but challenges nonetheless. You go back to first principles and all of the questions that I ask and all the answers that they provide were, how did you get through it? What did you do? Like in Mexico, for example, the tech infrastructure is so complicated. Like if you want to start like Carvana, you have to start five other companies in order to actually serve a Carvana type service because the infrastructure doesn't exist. The answers were all similar, right? It's like, what does the end state look like? What do we need to progress? How do we address it little by little? What are some of the bets that we want to make? Who are some of the people who are doing this really well? And let's figure it out. I think it's universal. I really do. I think there is, to a certain degree, this sort of Silicon Valley type experience. To be quite candid, I think the only reason why that is is because the Silicon Valley folks are the ones who are posting on LinkedIn. It doesn't mean that the Gojeks of the world in Indonesia or the Rappies of the world in Mexico or the Weisses of the world in the UK aren't doing just as great or if not even better things given the situations that they're in. If you could go back in time, are there any additional skills that you wish you prioritized that would have been helpful to you? I always go back to leadership. I think I would have wanted to probably learn how to become a much more effective leader in owning the processes and not assuming that there are other people or other parties that would be accountable for some of the work that my team would be doing, understanding the differences between being liked and being respected. These are the things I guess that I think about all the time now is how do I develop amazing leaders? But then the lens that I have is just my experience, right? And so this is why I talk to a lot of other leaders to try and understand like how they're thinking about things. But I think if there's one thing that I probably would have loved to learn earlier on is just how to be effective. What's one resource that either you have now or have used in the past that's helped you level up as a leader? Reforge. Outside of just obviously looking at what's culturally going on within the companies that I'm a part of and having multiple conversations, I think a significant portion of being a leader is just doing, right? And it's actually doing. And so I think that there's certainly a component of that, but just building interpersonal relationships with a lot of the leaders within that community and just learning from them and learning from some of the struggles that they've had. So I'd probably say, yeah, just... Reforge in the Reforge community for me. That's awesome. And for folks who are listening to this, is the takeaway there, they should join Reforge. I took Reforge back in 2015, a huge instrumental moment in my career. But is the takeaway for you also that you developed a peer group that was all within a few steps? That's a takeaway. 
because there's internal and there's external. It's not that different from having like a marathon running group. Within that group, if the passion is relatively the same, you guys will all learn from each other and all learn and bring in perspectives from the outside together. It just becomes a much deeper type of relationship with everybody involved. I love that. Right. And it's so hard to get with your internal colleagues or from your manager because you don't have that perspective. You're too close to it. Thank you for coming on, for sharing your stories, for sharing some of your journey and the mistakes and challenge along the way. For folks who are listening that want to follow and interact with you, where should we send them? Yeah, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I have a podcast. If you want to listen to podcasts about marketing, you can do that. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, the biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.